Hello, you're listening to Multiverses, and no, this is not about the Marvel comics. It is about marvelling at the wonders of the universe and human progress. Two decades ago, in 2003, the Human Genome Project announced that they had sequenced the human genome. Clues in the name. This meant they'd written down the uh, set of uh, base pairs, billions of base pairs, that constitute the human genetic code. Uh, since then, uh, the price of doing this has fallen from about $3 billion um, at that time to just a few hundred dollars. It's fallen by a staggering 10 million fold. Despite this enormous um, technological progress, there remain huge holes in our knowledge and our understanding of um, how the genome works. It's as if we've transcribed the Book of Life, but we don't know how to read it. Our guest this week is Anna Lewis. Anna is a researcher at the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard. She's going to talk a little bit about why it's been hard to make uh, progress in understanding how genes translate into traits, and also um, her particular area of interest, which is about understanding what we should do with that knowledge when we have it, how should we use it, and also how should we go about uh, acquiring that knowledge. So these are the ethical questions. In particular, look out for her thoughts on genetic ancestry. This is a notion that's really crucial for developing accurate polygenic risk scores, which are something that Anna will explain, but they're essentially useful medical tools which explain to individuals how likely they are to develop particular traits. And we need something like genetic ancestry to make those scores as accurate as possible. But if we misconstrue genetic ancestry, if we um, think of it as simple continental groupings of people, then we risk making race seem like something that's scientifically meaningful when it's not. And that will do a disservice to the science. It won't help that because it's simply not salient. And it will also do a great disservice um, and, and, and harm indeed to society. And it will introduce us to another way of understanding genetic ancestry, the ancestral recombination graph, which can get this right for both uh, scientific research and in ethical terms. Anna is an old friend of mine. In fact, we started studying together the same year that the genome was first sequenced. So I rather selfishly take this as an opportunity to ask her lots of questions about her career, how she went from PhD in systems biology to working in the genomics industry, and now to working in the ethics of genomics. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Uh, I'm James Robinson. This is Multiverses. Anna Lewis, uh, thank you for joining me on Multiverses. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here. This is very exciting because I'm getting to use, for the first time, the bi-directional setting on my microphone because you're actually sitting just across from me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks for being here in person as well. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, so we studied together, in fact, I think we met about 20 years ago. Um, and then four years after that, after studying physics and philosophy, I remember you, I remember asking you, oh, what is it that you're going to do next? And you said, oh, I'm doing a PhD in systems biology. And my question then, and it's a question I'm going to ask again is, well, what is systems biology? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I feel it was a buzz term at the time. And it, like the cynical view might be, it was whatever helped you to get grants at the time. 
But I got into that, and this is a roundabout way of answering your question, through a seminar series that I attended whilst we were undergrads on the conceptual foundations of systems biology, which was run by this guy called Dennis Noble, mm. who is um, well into his 80s by now. And he was one of the first people to mathematically model the heart back on those huge computers that took up a whole room. And he's sort of seen as one of the founders of systems biology. And he ran this seminar series because he was trying to get at this question of what, what is it that we're doing and what is it that characterizes the type of science that we're doing? Um, so it's certainly a science which um, tries to iterate between theory and experiment and that tries to model biological systems at multiple levels. So to understand how cellular function emerges from interactions between proteins, for example, or how systems level function emerges from kind of the details, potentially the, the mechanical and electric, um, electrical details of what the tissue is up to in the heart in his case. Um, so it's trying to sort of build up this holistic understanding of what's going on. And it's directly counter to what um, Dennis and various others saw as the dominant uh, philosophy in biology of reductionism, which was working out what the biological parts were. So that's, you know, human genome project and then identifying what the genes were. And you get this long parts list, which it turns out <laughs> doesn't really advance your understanding that much. You need to get to, well, how do those pieces interact together to sort of add up to more than the sum of the parts? And that's really, I think, what systems biology was about. And then you get some interesting conceptual issues when, for example, you're using the language of causation. Um, like Some people start talking about downward causation and that type of thing, and it all got very murky um, and and suspicious but yeah <laughs> that's that's sort of the best answer I can give but I do think that um, the place to actually go would be to see who is still offering grant money and how are they defining uh, those pots of money um, yeah yeah so I guess yeah it, it's striking you mentioned the word emergence and it is fascinating how some of the components in biology seem really simple and pretty well understood but then when you start to put them together you find that you get incredible complexity of behavior coming out was this something that attracted you i remember you talking about complexity at the time as well yeah for sure i think um yeah one of my favorite kind of anecdotes is that when they were doing the human genome project they had a sweepstake for the number of genes they thought they would find in the human genome and nobody guessed as few as were actually found, right? So everybody, that, so there's roughly like somewhere between 20 and 25,000, depending on how you count, it's actually not a very well-defined term. Um, but everybody had guessed way north of that number. And then, yeah, so somehow you've got a smaller number of parts than you thought, but it's both the case that the, that the parts themselves are more complicated and more interesting than we thought they were. And then there's just so many ways that they interact to bring about function um yeah so it's a very i, I remember 
I remember that the moment I sort of fell out of love with theoretical physics was sitting in our second year quantum mechanics lectures and we just modeled the hydrogen atom and that was very beautiful yeah <laughs> we got onto the helium atom which isn't a very exciting system um and you were already having to make what seemed like kind of ugly approximations and assumptions uh-huh. to really model it using the tools that you had available so if, like, if that was what was happening with the helium atom then what hope for like more genuinely interesting systems um yeah and we still don't have there's so many choices about how you model these systems and it depends what you want, what kind of understanding you want to get out of them. But that seemed to me more interesting. And yeah, I think on the other hand, like systems biology, I think maybe draws some inspiration from physics in that it, it is about modeling in a way that maybe just kind of traditional biology is more about, I don't know, observation and doesn't really have much room for the use of mathematical tools. I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, biology has this has this superpower of of evolution, and um, whose quote was it that like in the absence of evolution and the kind of explanatory framework that but that's giving you everything else in biology is stamp collecting. I think it was Rutherford, maybe. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. he said like there's. I think he said though that everything outside of physics was stamp collecting. Oh, I see. So, okay, yeah. He certainly caught biology in that, but yeah, it, yeah, uh, yeah. I think it was yeah physics and stamp collecting. But certainly, I mean, you can see how that fits with Darwin. He was like a stamp collector, but his stamps were like little fossils and things, right? Right, but he also was really trying to look for the patterns behind yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah, he categorised those stamps in a really explanatory way. He which, did, so and it's just phenomenal it how explanatory it is. Um, yeah, nothing in biology or life makes sense except in the light of evolution. Um, it's a very beautiful, very, very beautiful framework. Um, yeah, but but it's, but it's but I, I, I agree with you that it is, it is a science that's really trying to to model stuff and see where that gets you. Yeah. 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 Um, just on yeah. <laughs> completely off topic, but another of Rutherford's errors that I came across recently. Yeah. Tangential uh-huh. is uh, he's just before the, the day before that Leo Szilard came up with the, um, the way that you could create a nuclear chain reaction and oh, yeah. like harness um, nuclear energy. Uh, and in fact, inspired by something that Rutherford said. Rutherford said, oh, we'll never be able to do this. Like, this is just like a fool's errand. Uh-huh. And we'll never be able to get all this amazing quantities of energy that's stored in mass. Right. And Leo had read that, apparently. Yeah. Um, and just like, oh, maybe you can. <laughs> and within like 24 hours, he figured it out. So, um, Challenge think, accepted. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's good sometimes to have these throw down statements and like, right. prove me wrong. So yeah, prove that it's not just stamp collecting. Right. And I think systems biology is is certainly one of the ways that that challenge is is being taken up in biology um yeah i think that's right and these days people like to throw or at least what they like to call their ai tools at it which often is less less explanatory and yeah one of the things i like about systems biology is you know it makes it very clear what your models are which is something that i think we sometimes lose mm-hmm. um yeah so you should always be clear when you're doing science like what are the set of assumptions that you are making in order to derive your results and then you need to remember what those were and i think we often forget those maybe yeah. we good to 
one kind of doubt that enters my mind about just the prospects for for, for these kind of ways of studying things is just emergence seems fundamentally complex and, and hard to model. Um, and we were talking earlier just offline about how, mm. um, you know, Stephen Wolfram, for instance, is saying, well, uh, everything is just models. But yeah. on the other hand, the models sort of acquire this kind of complexity that at some point you lose track of like the explanatory power of the the model perhaps um and, and i don't know maybe if we can think through if you have an example that comes to mind of where either this is really hard like where it just seems fundamentally difficult with uh, to model something and actually get explanatory power back because the simplifications of the model break the um you know the predictive power or where it actually works um putting you on the spot here <laughs> yeah Oh, well, you know, the first thing, this isn't exactly what you're after, but I think the thing with these complex systems is you is it's very easy to have an oversimplified story that you then think applies to various things that you see. So I remember learning about stripes that form in various animals, and you can have a really nice reaction diffusion equation that's happening in the embryo, which will generate these stripes for you. And then for, you know, for a long time, I can't remember which model system it was in. It was like, oh, yeah, this is how we get the stripes. <laughs> and indeed, I think there are some systems or some organisms in which that's the case. But then you get the same thing, the same sort of stripy pattern forming during development for lots of other kind of mechanisms as well. Mm -hmm. So it's really easy to think, oh, yeah, we've explained this phenomena. <laughs> yeah. And then think that applies to, in this case, all of life, when actually it applies to this small little section of the tree of life. And, um, yeah, you just can't generalise as much as you thought you could. Um, I think that's one of the, one of the big dangers. Um, yeah. So partly there's a kind of lesson in, I don't know, maybe not humility, but being cautious here from and actually one of the things that systems biology is telling us is this is hard right and we have yeah. to <laughs> we have to appreciate that um sometimes it may look that like you know the the data fits our model but uh that doesn't mean the model's correct right right and i think something that happened something that's happened several times in biology is that physicists have kind of really turned to biology so that happened during the molecular biology um kind of early days there were obviously schrodinger famously famously writes this book what is life where he's really sort of hypothesizing about what yeah. the genetic material might be this is um pre uh, watson and crick and he was part of a like a sort of wave of biologists that go towards biology and i think that was happening again um kind of in the uh, I think it happens continuously, but a lot of uh, physicists were sort of taking their toolkit and hoping that it would be applicable to biology. Yeah. Um, and uh, and maybe doing some oversimplifications along the way. So I do think that a lot of humility is needed. Yeah, I think yeah, the Schrodinger example is is a good one, uh, and we've had a lot of episodes on on quantum mechanics. Right. <laughs> it's really interesting yeah. to see. Yeah. I mean, he was. I, I, I'm curious about your opinion on his on his book on what is life. It seems like there's some very good insights in there. Like the one one that sticks with me is that 
you can't explain the kind of structural stability of chemistry that you need yeah. um, to, to sustain kind of the transmission of characteristics, you know, through generations um, without quantum mechanics. Uh-huh. Um, you need, but you also need that stuff to be flexible enough that characteristics can change. Um, and he has this kind of insight that, that things have to be very kind of carefully balanced before he, you know, right. as you say, before DNA was discovered, he was like, well, there's got to be some code here that's pretty stable, but not completely frozen, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly right. And that's like a kind of parameter, actually, I guess it's a like, you know, it's a more complicated space than a unidimensional space, but a parameter that evolution tunes, mm-hmm. right? It's like how how much mutation do you get each generation um but yeah i think i mean um it's a very long time since i read the book but i think he he uses the term a periodic crystal yeah which is not you know not too far off right yeah. like there was definitely something in that but i think i think his main contribution was to inspire a bunch of physicists to go into biology yeah 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 did I, I guess he was some. He was not one of your inspirations, though. That was like more. Um. Yeah, I um. Yeah, I definitely credit Dennis Noble to a large extent, and he's got some very accessible books where he's he sort of saw himself as the counterpoint to Dawkins. So Dawkins, so these two, you know, old white guys, and um, based in Oxford. And Dawkins is very associated with this reductionist view. And Dennis was trying to sort of build the counter, the counterculture against that. Um, Yeah. I remember sitting with, I'm sure you were there, but I remember being in a room in Balliol um, because both Dawkins and Dennis Noble had some kind of associations with Balliol, I think. Yeah. Dennis Noble was at Balliol at the time. Yeah. Dawkins had been, and they had these... Yeah, very different views. I remember Dennis Noble reading an extract from The Selfish Gene where Dawkins says, oh, all the genes are interested in is, you know, propagating themselves and doing this and they'll use humans to, um, and like, you know, emergent structures, I suppose, to kind of fulfill this for them. And then he just, you know, went through it line by line and reversed the meaning of, of every kind of like... Um, I guess, uh, intentional verb. Right. So it was like, um, you know, oh, well, or, or, or the structure, I suppose. Like, yeah. oh, humans are just like exploiting their genes so that they can get the things that they care about right. done. And, you know, it was, um, you know, I suppose going to the falsification and or, or, or falsifiability of this theory and saying, you know, is there really content in this assertion or scientific content in this assertion? Right. Um, right, it's modelling. It's modelling all the way down. Like, yeah, his point was, and I, I'd forgotten about that, but thank you for reminding me. His point was that in that whole paragraph, which is a very sort of central paragraph to the selfish gene, there's almost no empirical statements. I think there was like, you know, the, the genes are inside us or something, which was perhaps the, the only thing which would qualify. And then all the rest was kind of metaphor. Yeah. And it can be very useful metaphor. And, it, you know, it, I think it has prompted, the sort of selfish gene model has prompted people to go off and look for new empirical data. 
But I remember asking Dawkins in some talk he was given about the extent to which he viewed what he was doing as building up these models and metaphors. And, and his answer was, you know, not very much. <laughs> and um, yeah, but I, I think it is. It's like, you know, it's a way of modeling what's going on. Um, and the danger is when we think that there's like one true way to look at reality. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's natural often for us to conflate models with reality. Yeah. Like if a model is 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 really successful, then yeah, yeah like you kind of take the elements of that model and you say right. that stuff exists. But I suppose like the the issue is with the kind of genetic model is it's not telling us anything about like it doesn't have desires built into it right that's just like something that's kind of grafted on i mean you can view it as part of dawkins's model but it's not a fundamental aspect of of kind of the science i suppose like as you say like fundamental is things like the genes are inside us like that that is a part of the model yeah the central dogma of you know Right. No, but I still, I, I would still, maybe I'm using the term more expansively, the term model. Like, it's like a set of ways of thinking about something mm. that would prompt other ways of thinking about the same thing. So the whole, I would view the whole kind of selfish gene as like a, a sort of model or class of models for thinking about biological mm. systems. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, okay, so systems biology... Yeah. You did a PhD in that. Um, and I've got to say, whether it was like, you know, whether the the, the money being, uh, you know, following that field was a motivation or um, not, you certainly picked a time where, like, just over the past decades, not so much, or not just systems biology, but I, I guess, like, um, the technology around biology yeah. has just, like, exploded right um so yeah tell us what you did next um Um, well i took a minor detour via management consultancy um and australia it's quite quite you know geographically (laughs) and then um i was actually i was supposed to be in san francisco for a weekend uh but i actually stayed with a physics and philosopher um forebear of ours um adam brown in san francisco and i had a really wonderful wonderful time and met all these people fired up about life and excited about projects and ideas Uh, so i phoned up my employer in australia and told them i wasn't coming back and then there i was in the states and i needed to get a visa quickly so i bulked up my coding abilities and i got a job um in a company which was building software to interpret genomes Mm -hmm. so you know, it was the case then. So this is 10 years ago now, nearly 10 years ago. And it's even more the case now that, you know, people cite the, the, the cost of sequencing genetic material has, that cost has decreased faster than Moore's law. Yeah. But what does that get you? That gets you a whole load of, you know, there's this very, very sort of turnkey software that will then get you a whole load of, um, a, C, G's and T's, basically, reads we call them, which you can then compare um, to what we call the reference genome. Uh, and then you look for differences. And 
if you're if you're looking at a whole genome, so across the three billion base pairs of of our genomes, you'll get out somewhere like depend it depends how you count like th three or four million points at which any given individual will vary from that reference genome, mm -hmm. and we call those genetic variants. So to get from the stage where you've gone from you know sample of blood or saliva to that list of variants, mm -hmm. that price has come down hugely. But that list of variants doesn't actually tell you anything. Right. You need to then interpret them. And so we were building software to do that stage. And, um, and there's, a few, there's, there's various different moving parts to it. Um, and there's various different use cases for why you might want to do that. But the, the central one you know, was then and continues to be today where you have basically a person, usually a child, with a suspected genetic condition, mm -hmm. and you want to find out what's causing it. Right. Um, and the, you, know, you have this list of four million variants, and one or at most two would be the underlying causative variants, if it is indeed um, what we call a Mendelian genetic disease, which is basically something has gone really wrong with exactly one gene. Okay. Um, either, either both copies, both the copy inherited from mum and the copy inherited from dad are funky and that's a recessive condition, um, which uh, um, a, a great many of the 8,000 or so rare genetic diseases that we know are, or sometimes you need just one copy of the gene mm. um, to be to be funky it's either lost function or it's gain function mm -hmm. those are the dominant diseases um and typically those variants have not been inherited from either mum or dad they've arised de novo in um, more often than not the sperm sometimes the egg or sometimes early on in in embryonic development um so the challenge is to identify those variants and there's all sorts of different information that you can use to try and do that um, from, um, from sort of evolutionary uh, conservation. You can look at humans compared to other species. Mm -hmm. um, if it's a really conserved point and then this individual has something, um, you, you know, a, a mutation there, then that can alert you that maybe that increases the chance that that particular variant might be causative. Yeah. Or if it's a variant which is really, really rare across humans sampled throughout the world, that increases its chances. Um, often we might have other types of evidence, so functional evidence, somebody's actually done some sort of an experiment. And there's various other classes of evidence. Yeah. And yeah, you need to sort of aggregate those. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and then you need to try and convince whomever might be, if you think that you found the variant, you sort of add up the evidence and see whether it will cross the bar for what we consider reportable to a family. Right. Um, and a lot of this is, you know, continues to be non-automatable. So you have to give people, give humans the tools to sort of try and integrate these different puzzle pieces and um, crack the case, and we use that kind of terminology. Um, it, it seems, I mean, uh, 
it seems like it should be automatable. I mean, I my sort of like zoomed out view is something like we're trying to read the book of life, right. but we really can't. But what yeah. we have is lots and lots of copies of that book. Yeah. And we're looking at least for where there's been like an error, like in, you know, where there's a misprint, let's say. Yeah. Um, and we, we can do that by looking, as you say, uh, even at other species, because we share so much, um, you know, so much DNA with them, so much of right. our genome with them. Um, or, you know, more particularly at, at other humans. And then you find, like, is there a single misprint? Because this is really weird. Right. Like everyone else has got this in the text. Um, yeah, why is that hard to... Is it just hard to automate because we don't have all the data in one place or...? I mean, one of the reasons is you need a ginormous amount of data. Yeah. So at this stage, hundreds of thousands of humans have been sequenced and a lot of those have been aggregated into databases. Right. But, um, you know, yeah, some of these variants are just... Yeah, they're, they're so, so rare. Right. And actually just getting enough evidence that reaches this threshold of, yeah, that's convincing, um, uh, can be really tough. And particularly um, before you sort of look at the variant level, you need to have some sort of linkage between the gene and the condition. And you need more than one case to do that. Um, so there's, there's right. a so, process of yeah. matchmaking and there are some really awesome um, uh, tools and platforms that enable people around the world to do this. They'll be like, okay, I've got a suspected, I think this gene might be implicated in this kid who has this set of phenotypes. And then um, somebody else might have also said, I think that this gene might be implicated in this kid with this set of phenotypes. And the system will be yeah. then, yes, match. And then as soon as so you've got- Phenotypes are just like, the you know, yeah, phenotypes is just like descriptions of the condition. And very, yeah. very often it'll be like, there'll be many different kind of um, features of these genetic syndromes because they often will impact a lot of different aspects of, of, of a kid's condition. Right. Like not always. Sometimes it will just be like, um, you know, global developmental delay or something fairly... Um, general. Gen general. Yeah. But if you've got some really specific things, like there's um, you, um, medical geneticists have built up a whole vocabulary for describing all the slightly different ways that facial features can be different, for example. Okay, yeah. Um, so if you, get a, if you get a good match on some very specific terms like that, that can really increase your confidence that the, that the link between the gene and the condition is a good one. Uh -huh. And as soon as you've got like more than one affected child then you can leverage that but if you've if you've got a variant even if it looks really suspicious but the gene hasn't been implicated in, in that condition before you're never going to make it reach this bar which is reportable to the family right um uh, because yeah you do need you do need to be able to sort of sum up this evidence in a convincing way and of course there are all sorts of people and groups working on this variant interpretation problem um, all sorts of companies um, who want to throw the latest and coolest AI tools um, at the problem. So hopefully we'll, you know, we'll see some progress. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, th yeah. I think one of the things that you mentioned, and I mean, you, you did say there'd been, I don't know, a huge decrease in the cost of genomics, but right. it, it's almost hard to 
overstate like how profound that decrease has. I mean, you said it's been right. faster than Moore's law, um, and it. I was looking at this and I think it's seven orders of magnitude or something. If you go from yeah. the human genome project where it was right. around $3 billion right. and they didn't even, you know, do it that well, they did it well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. They, you know, they didn't actually sequence everything at, right. at the time. Right. And now it's down to probably $300 about and will probably be $100 or yeah. so next year. Or less year. even, but like who, who are you going to sequence? Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> when it gets cheap enough and you have enough um you sort of have in the, in the terminology of like startups like some killer app right, right. Like i think chat gpt has been that killer app for machine learning where there's yeah. been all this promote you know yeah. progress over decades right. and you know again also reductions in compute cost improvements in models uh like improvements in the training and just suddenly it's like crystallized in this one thing where it's like oh i'll, I'll get that like i'll use that yeah um i think we 23 and me notwithstanding i don't think there's been that um kind of revolution in, in in genomics in terms of right so what is the killer app there's all sorts of people that would like very much to answer that question and the ancestry testing has been surprisingly at least in my mind popular and yeah. has really driven a lot of people we're talking millions of people to um in their case they're not they're not doing uh sequencing they're doing genotyping which is yeah. getting a far smaller set of dna um uh, it's like looking at it's a like few a sample, hundred thousand right? okay. of the most variable points um in our genomes and it's giving you know, what they frame as ancestry information and a lot of people are really interested in that and then there's another subset of people who are really interested um in the use case of identifying blood relatives. Um, uh, there's a lot of people um, who have been adopted who, who are really interested in that, um, or donor conceived, or just estranged from their families and they don't want to be, their biological families, that is. Um, so so those, those have been really popular. Um, uh, use cases but the you know the, the kit sales for those companies have been leveling off yeah um yeah so it seems like they might have tapped most of the market um so people hope that people will get their genome sequenced because it really reveals actionable health information yeah um and you know, there is some actionable information to be had within the genome. I think there's less of it for healthy people than um, we might think. And when I say less of it, I mean, like, um, the type of information that you could then take to your doctor and your doctor would be like, oh, yeah, so I'm going to now order you this new screening test or I'm going to put you on this new drug or I'm going to do I'm going to do something different because you share this information with me. Right. There's actually surprisingly little stuff that rises to that level. Is um, that is that because there's just other factors that are much more important? Or is it maybe that there's just things that we don't yet know um, about, you know, the way that genes function? And maybe we find actually, you know, personalised medicine could be really powerful because... You know, yeah. I don't know, just, just the choice of aspirin manufacturer or something that, that is used like would, would, would be 
you know, optimized on a personal basis as things as trivial as that? Or, or is it really just those things are super robust? I think it turns out to be more complicated than we thought it was. So one example is, okay, so, so, so far we've, we've been limited to talking about um, sort of conditions for which single genes have a really large role to play. So let's, yeah. let's, let's like round out that story to where we are today. Um, so most of those discoveries were based on um, uh, families or individuals within those families who had really uh, strong phenotypes. But it then turns out that if you look at a healthy group of people, there are some of them that carry those same genetic variants, but they're not expressing mm. that same phenotype. Right. So that's called penetrance. So a completely penetrant variant would be one that, you know, no matter who had it, they're going to develop that condition. Like Huntington's is actually an example of that. Like if you've got the variant, yeah. then you're going to get the condition. And that is like, is that some? Yeah. And it just, something that we've been learning, and this is much more recent, is that a lot of the things that we thought were very highly penetrant turn out not to have been. Right. As we've gathered more data of um, the combination of the genetic data with electronic health record data, we've realized that there's all sorts of individuals walking around with these variants that we thought would lead to like severe genetic disease and they don't. Yeah. Um, so that's more <laughs> that's a more complicated picture than it's it's complicated, but could it be I mean, I suppose we don't... Uh, do we understand why? Um, okay, so why are these variants that we thought were always going to be pathogenic, is the term we use, not? Well, look, there are lots of theories, including the fact that the genetic background, like the other variants that you have, make a difference, that various environmental factors make a difference. Um, there, there, there are many different flavors of theory, but I'd say, I'd say no. I'd say that this issue of penetrance is a big kind of relatively open question in the field right now. Let me just say something about other, other complications. Um, so we know that most common conditions have a genetic component, right? So something like type two diabetes, um, we know from family studies these are typically studies where you're comparing identical to non-identical twins to get some sense of the kind of genetic, the fraction of the variance in the trait, which can be attributed to differences in genetics versus differences in environment. Okay, there's a whole other conversation to be had about how reliable you think these numbers are, but we talk about some traits being more heritable than others. Um, so something like height uh, is highly heritable, maybe 80, 90%. Um, it's uh, the the heritability depends also on the environment. Um, if you're in an environment where there was um, like not not everybody was getting good nutrition, then you would you would measure a different value for heritability, for example. Um, so okay, so what does that mean? It means that we expect to find genetic variants which are associated to height. Mm -hmm. um, but the same can be said for, it turns out, in fact, to an embarrassing extent, um, most traits that we can measure in humans. Um, so it certainly turns out to be the case for IQ, for the number of years that you're gonna stay in education, for your predisposition to heart attack, to type two diabetes, to get common cancers, 
um, to your agreeableness and other measures of your personality, to how likely you are to get divorced if you get married. Like all of these things have a heritability which is much higher than zero. Right. Um, and so how do we go and try and find the genetic variants that are associated with those? Well, we, uh, let's take the case control setting. So people who do get a heart attack before age 50, say, and those who don't, you're literally just comparing all of your cases and controls and you're trying to find variants which are more common in your cases than your controls. Yeah. Um, uh, that's called a genome-wide association study or a GWAS. And... Um, one of the big lessons from, from, from the whole field of GWAS is that we needed really, really large sample sizes to get off the ground yeah. because it turned out that all the variants, that there were variants to be found, but they all had very small effect sizes. So right. you needed really large numbers in your studies to be empowered enough to detect them. So, okay, so GWAS started being successful, really successful, maybe like seven years ago or something like that um and at this stage for like a lot of these conditions for example schizophrenia we we've identified quite a lot of these variants which make somewhat of a difference but all of these variants make much less of a difference than we thought that they were going to um but you can start to aggregate the many effects of these variants each of which have a small effect into yeah. numbers that we call polygenic risk scores and those, um, many would argue, are starting to be predictive enough to be used in clinical practice. Right. So just just to make sure I got it. So you have, I mean, your kind of your early work was looking at kind of single genes and how, for instance, I, I think there's a single gene associated associated with uh, uh, Huntington's disease. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So. At, they're kind of like the clearest signals that you can get. I mean, in particular, right. Huntington's yeah, yeah. disease is like very clear. Like that's, as you say, completely, was it permanent? Uh, penetrant. Penetrant, sorry. Yeah. Completely yeah. penetrant. So if you have that gene, like you're going to have yeah. that disease. Um, whereas there's other cases where it's sort of like, well, you might, you might not. Um, and then you then get to look at sort of the combination of how genes um, uh, can affect particular traits um, and that's the kind of where the, the poly comes in, in in the polygenic right and the models today are almost all strictly additive so you right. you find these these you've just done a big sort of statistical analysis and you've identified that there's that this if you have this genetic variant at this position you have a um, slightly increased chance of developing let's say type 2 diabetes to take an example but then you found a few hundred of those um, and you literally just add them up. Okay. Uh, proportional to their effect sizes. This is the simplest case. And you get out a number and that number um, is a bit higher in the cases, the people who develop type 2 diabetes in, in your validation data, this is, than the people who don't. Yeah. And then there's a question of, so that means it's somewhat predictive, right? And the question is, how predictive does it need to be to be useful to share with yeah. generally healthy people? Yeah. And, and then to get back to your killer app question, like, could this be um, a killer app for people wanting to go and get sequenced because they would get this information 
which might be actionable for their health. Yeah. Yeah. And there's perhaps like a little bit of a chicken and an egg situation going on here in that, yeah, suddenly those polygenic risk scores are predictive unless there's just noise, right? And they might just be noise if, if the effect size is low and the sample is small. Um, and yeah, they're only, they're going to get better as we have sort of larger samples of um, or more people whose genome has been sequenced but it's like getting the in- the incentive for them to do that is is what you <laughs> what you need like these good where you need good polygenic risk right i mean we basically we need people to donate their data um so if you sign up for 23 and me you're going to get asked if you're willing to let your data be used for research like, I don't know what, and this is in an anonymous fashion. Um, there's a sort of like side story about whether genetic data can truly be anonymous, but yeah. currently it's viewed as anonymous, right? So um, are you willing to let your genetic data be used in an anonymous fashion for research? About 80% of 23andMe's customers say yes. Okay. So that's a big, um, that's a really big data set. The UK Biobank is probably the single most used data source right now. That's a cohort of like 500,000-ish uh, Brits who are now all in their 60s and 70s, I think. Um, and how is that? Uh, is that full genome sequencing from that? Or is it they're like building up to that. Okay. I believe they've released whole exomes, which is the protein coding part of the genomes already. And I think they're working on the genomes it, and this is this is where some people start to get their heckles raised because the way they fund that is they partner with pharma companies who are willing to pay um and they get back something in return like often often i'm actually not sure exactly how it works with the uk biobank data but often they'll get exclusive access for like for 12 months or yeah. something like that um so so yeah, so, so those, those kind data donors were willing to give up, um, to give access to their data, to seize a certain amount of control over their data uh, in order to further science. Like that was, you know, thank you to all those people. Um, but something we find is that it's, it's non-trivial to get people to sign up to these studies. People yeah. have a lot of concerns about, about giving away their data like that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, um, privacy, people worried about privacy, I think often in quite a sort of um, abstract way. Yeah. And um, worried about confidentiality. It's also the case that, um, so, so, so one of the things that research teams will do to, to help sort of make it worthwhile for people to give up their data is to offer to return results to them that will be very medically actionable right um uh and i that probably does incentivize some people but then you also get this this issue of genetic discrimination which is if you if you know something about your health and you don't share it with a a life insurer that's fraud all right so in the u.s um there was no protection 
against genetic discrimination at the federal level when it comes to life insurance. There is for health insurance, for most health insurance, and for most employment settings, but that's it. There are various other settings in which there is no protection. Um, so uh, you know, it could be the case, I would say this is all very, you know, to a large extent, still theoretical at this point, because there really haven't been that many cases that you you know you sign up for a genetic study you find out you've got some sort of a a variant that puts you at an increased risk for a disease and there aren't any actions that will fully mitigate against that increased risk that you can take and a life insurer might um say no we don't want to take you on or charge you higher premiums or something so people worry about genetic discrimination as well um and then yeah so so so, so so people probably rightly think twice before yeah. they are willing to give over their genetic data. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, 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 you know, on the one, at one level, it seems like there's almost a moral imperative to do this. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's complicated as you said many <laughs> times. Like yeah. uh, this is challenging and it seems like, yeah, there's kind of opposing incentives between, you know, for pharma companies, like there's certainly a benefit for wanting everyone to do this, but for individuals, the life insurance gives like a really good, and I, I wasn't aware of that. Like that's right. that's really, and it's and it's not even it's not even that kind of concrete. For some people, it is the people who are, um, kind of have read the fine print of the consent forms, for example. But for a lot of people, I just hear, oh right, but then my data might get shared for something that I don't support. Um, uh, you know, 23andMe might get bought by some player that I don't like what they're doing. Um, just, you just, to a large extent, you lose control over what happens to your data. And I think a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people um, also are very willing to think, oh, if we're if it's kind of academic scientists, we're happy to support their work by sharing our data. Yeah. Um, but if it's if it's connected to the for profit sector, then we feel iffy about that, um, even though, of course, the for profit sector is ultimately motivated or to, to, to a large extent to, you know, discover the new medicines that are so sorely needed. And I would also say that those individuals who are sick um, with a suspected genetic component or, or very often the families of the kids who are, they don't have any of these qualms. They're like, take yeah. our data, share it with as many people as you can, yeah. help us find some answers. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, I think with privacy, the it's, it's a moving window um, in terms of what, what people regard as fair in terms of data sharing. Right. I think it's it, it's changed a lot. I, it seems to have swung one way and back again, at least for things like location sharing, right. where I think people were at first pretty blasé about, oh, I'll share my location, I'll get some you know service back from this. Right. Um, but then a lot of apps would just ask for location, which had no real obvious... <laughs> Right. need for that yeah um and and now i think it's got much stricter um and and similar for maybe similar for photo sharing and like p pictures of oneself appearing online you know even if you know i didn't put them out there you know that that, that we've kind of grown fairly 
comfortable with that because sort of now in the public space it's just what happens like you know your photo gets taken by a friend or something like that. right uh, and i I'm not seeing it happen, but I do wonder if this might happen with gene sequencing. I mean, our DNA is like everywhere, right? And the cost of sequencing it is so low um, that it it just makes one wonder, well, you know, at some point, will I even have a reasonable expectation of privacy? So if I go to yeah. a restaurant or something and they they want to do a survey of their, their diners to sort of understand like, Oh, can we like optimize our flavors? You know, it's just got some completely impossible sci-fi scenario here. Like, and, and they just like extract everyone's DNA, and they're like, "Oh yeah, next time you go, and I've got the best. You're gonna have the best experience eating here today because we've built this dish for you." Well, well, something that you're touching on is a field called environmental DNA. It's actually really pioneered by people studying things like invasive species or species at risk from climate change and changing environments. Um, which is extracting DNA from the environment because, you know, organisms shed DNA mm-hmm. um, as they move through their worlds. And we are no different, it turns out. <laughs> so even if what you're wanting to study is, you know, endangered turtles, if they're hanging out anywhere where humans also are, you're also going to gather a whole lot of human DNA. And this falls in this, like, a little bit of a grey zone um from our sort of consent frameworks etc and i think that's a very interesting um area to watch with where we're going to need new norms so so my my field and uh, my sort of academic field is called lc mm-hmm. which is the ethical legal and social implications of genetics and genomics they got a good like acronym for that yeah <laughs> and we should say as well so after working sort of in industry right trying to solve these problems i guess i suppose you encountered another kind of problem which is like the i i was finding that i was um so i'll just close out the comment that i think we need um a new sort of subfield of lc of environmental dna Mm -hmm. um but yeah i was finding in my work in the genetics industry that these sort of ethical issues were popping up so i'll give you just a couple of examples one was connected to the life insurance thing that i was mentioning before like the first time I had to write a consent document um, for individuals to participate in genetics research, right? Um, I had to copy and paste a paragraph of text which basically explained what I explained to you about not being protected. It's life insurance. And that just felt so wrong. It's like, what? We, sh- we should have designed the system <laughs> so yeah. that... Um, we should do everything that we can to try to right. you know, incentivize people to do this. Exactly. If we think it's in the... Exactly. You know, and I should just clarify that I was explaining the situation in the States. It varies by country. Right. Um, uh, so that felt really... Ooh. And another thing was connected to this process I was describing before, where you're interpreting a variant and seeing if it's actually linked to a condition. There have been new guidelines published that said that you should try and match the frequency that that variant occurred in, in, um, I think it said a race-matched way, mm. uh, which seemed to me like really weird, like, you know, what we know race is socially constructed, etc. cetera. And, um, and indeed, that, that is, and that's an area that I've subsequently done a lot of work in, just sort of some very unclear concepts in the mix that people were then trying to kind of codify 
um, in, in systems that were designed for clinical practice. That was what I was trying to do. I was needing to read this paper that was telling me how to interpret variants and sort of code it up. Um, but there were sort of big gaping holes between, um, uh, you know, just, just everywhere, basically, in terms of the concepts at play and how they were operationalized. Um, yeah, and then, you know, at around, around this time, um, uh, when I was still working in industry, uh, CRISPR was really taking off. Yeah. Um, and, and with a colleague um, who was studying for her law PhD at the time, Sarah Polks, she and I wrote a few articles for academic journals as sort of weekend projects. <laughs> so that was me dipping my toe in the water. That was on, on, on various aspects of, of CRISPR, so gene modification. Um, and I decided to try and get back into academia. Um, and I found out, in fact, um, to my great good fortune, that ELSI, this ethical, legal, social implications of genetics and genomics, is probably the single most, most advanced and most well-funded field in applied ethics that mm. there is, full stop. And the reason for that is historical. It's um, when they were um, contemplating uh, the Human Genome Project, um, there was an agreement to set aside a small percentage of the overall budget for what became known as ELSI. Mm. Um, uh, you know, apparently Watson might have agreed to this because he thought it would shut up the critics. To have right. <laughs> um, but, but um, you know, some work was done alongside the, the sequencing of the first genome. And ever since... Um, there has been a pot of money set aside for ELSI. Huh. So currently, the sort of the institute that, that funds genomics research in the States, the National Human Genome Research Institute, it's part of the NIH, it has a federal mandate to spend 5% of its money on ELSI research. And that gives a continuous stream of money for that field. It, um, it enables people has like big training grants to support people to come into that field um and it's it's a pretty it's a pretty busy field for example neuroethics which i think should be at least as large a field is minuscule in comparison and it's because of this like federally funded structure um uh and and that that is basically what's enabling me to break back into academia there aren't really any departments that would fund this kind of work and that would be like, oh yeah, come and be a faculty member of my department. It's like this really weird interdisciplinary thing, but there is grant money to support it. Okay. Um, but no, I, I was lucky in that um, my current boss, a political philosopher called Danielle Allen, she's an absolutely amazing um, character of the life, um, she had got interested in polygenic risk scores, which we had, were discussing earlier, mm -hmm. because a friend of hers, a geneticist, um, had said, Danielle, I'm really worried about what's happening in my field. And from an ethics point of view, please help. Um, so, uh, so Danielle had, had got interested in these polygenic risk scores. And 
when I decided to leave industry and to try to get back into academia, there were very, I found very, very few options of places that I could apply. And one of them was to Harvard's Ethics Centre, who had, which has a fellowship and residence program. This is the centre that Danielle runs. And when she saw my very quirky application, <laughs> she was already primed because she was already interested in polygenic risk scores. So I think that was, that gave me my, my foot in the door. Um, and yeah, uh, and I've been back in academia for uh, four years now. Uh, thinking mostly about genetic ancestry, about polygenic risk scores, and then some other things as well. Um, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to talk about, or that we can talk about from from here. Um, and I, I do want to come back to CRISPR because I, I I found your work with uh, Sarah on this really interesting. But but maybe if we talk about race, because uh, I think this is where, you know, you've really been. Um, you know, trying to change, I guess, the way that research is being done yeah. um, recently. Um, so maybe if you if you start by telling us, like, you know, how race was slash is being used in, in biology and what's, yeah. you know, what, how it's being trying to move on from there and, and, and the degrees of success in which it's <laughs> managing to do so. Right. Yeah, I like I like to frame this as the opportunity, the danger, and the path forward. Okay. So um, I guess maybe we just start by saying like race is a social construct, and then people are like, "Oh, well, everything's a social construct." It's like, yeah, but like uh, if you look at early twentieth century U.S., an mm-hmm. Italian would not have counted as white. Yeah. So it's just so sort of space and time specific these categories that we put people in yeah um and it's you know it, it it's almost always a function of whoever's benefit it is to put people into these different categories yeah um, they've, they've not been designed for biology right? they've definitely not been designed for biology <laughs> although you know weirdly i think you know the people who originated some of these concepts were sort of like i mean linnaeus for instance was a a botanist right but they and just didn't have any like i it's clear they weren't really looking at the data so much as just that's right that's right and they they were you know creatures of their time yeah. and their uh, their political environments um yeah so i think so so here's here's the opportunity so um particularly two pieces of context one was uh, the COVID pandemic really mm-hmm. just highlighting these awful race-based health disparities in outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the other was the Black Lives Matter movement, which just made people particularly aware of the way that like race structures uh, lives. Yeah. And, um, and so the people were then really looking... Um, looking at the practice of medicine and, and and sort of biotech more generally as well and noticing that race was often baked into clinical algorithms just to give one example mm-hmm. in ways that were not really justified or justifiable a really famous example is for kidney function like you estimate this this is done like i don't know hundreds of thousands of times a day probably 
maybe maybe not hundreds of thousands, but just super, super common uh, practice across clinical medicine. And you fill in various things like age and you get some results from blood tests. And then one of them is like, is this patient African-American? Yes or no. And that adds a correction factor. Mm. So um, in, a, in a way that basically ends up systematically making it harder for African-Americans to qualify for kidney transplants, for, mm. as just as an example. So a lot of people started looking at these algorithms and being like, oh, hang on, wait a second. Um, why, why, why are we doing that? Mm-hmm. And, um, and in almost all cases, there weren't good answers. So there's a whole sort of process of trying to um, question use of race as a variable in biomedicine. Um, uh, and, and another piece of context is within genetics and genomics, um, we've had much more attention on kind of um, the diversity of the samples we have. So for example, the polygenic risk scores that we were talking about earlier, they generalize well for training data, for like to individuals who look like the training data and not beyond that. Yeah. Um, that's another conversation about why, but anyway, they don't. <laughs> so people are like, oh dear, we've, we've really got to rethink who is in our data. Right. Um, so, so yeah, so both in biomedicine as a whole and in my field in particular, people were thinking about who's in the data, what's the appropriate way to categorize them, etc. And the folks over in the sort of clinical biomedicine world, a lot of people were saying, okay, race Mm. clearly it's not appropriate to use that but genetic ancestry that's something that is you know evidence-based objective fixed characteristic of the genome um we should be using that Um, and what is yeah maybe tell us what is well how are they characterizing genetic ancestry um well the dominant way um is with these continental labels like african ancestry european ancestry asian ancestry and this is the danger because those are in practice directly conflated with the race-based categories that we're wanting to move away from so black white asian yeah There Um, there doesn't seem much between saying like European and European or like, you know, white European versus European ancestry. Right, right. And um, some people will say, oh, no, there's this notion of admixture, which is part of the solution. No, it's part of the problem Um, because it also assumes that you've got these pure types that the basic error is to think that humans come in some small number of basic types. and that's what this use of continental ancestry categories really perpetuates. Um, it's the idea that you, you know, like you're a European ancestry person, or you're an African ancestry person, or maybe you're some admixture of the two. Um, humans do not come in a small number of basic types, um, and it's not even a, a good model. Um, uh, so there's a we, you know, humans are interrelated in this ginormous human family tree. A tree is actually not a good metaphor. It's more like some people like to say a braided stream. Um, mm-hmm. Or a, a kind of web, I guess. Where Yeah, a kind of web. Um, a directed acyclic graph, basically. Very nice. Um, 
and um, and DNA has been passed down uh, through that web. Um, and there's there's an object, um, a mathematical object called the ancestral recombination graph, which just captures that idea. And then for any individual, um, uh, what uh, what myself and collaborators want to say. Um, and this is really beautifully articulated um, in a piece called What is Ancestry by Ian Matheson and Alwyn Scally, um, that genetic ancestry just is this ancestral recombination graph. So for an individual, your genetic ancestry is a sort of subset of paths through your family tree mm-hmm. by which you have inherited the DNA that you have. Mm-hmm. And um, that big old human family non-tree <laughs> is structured in all sorts of interesting ways it's structured by everything that influences who has children with who which includes geography it includes language it includes religious practices it includes all sorts of other things and to default to this same set of big big old categories is just far too much of a gross oversimplification of what's actually going on yeah so 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 we advocate that first of all it's really helpful um to get conceptually clear about what genetic ancestry is because it makes clear that a notion of a group of dividing that tree up into chunks is not inherent to the concept there's not an it's also not inherent to the concept to sort of label the individuals in that graph with anything other than their genealogical connections. Now, you can choose to impose groups or you can choose to add labels, but those are choices which, like, individual research teams can make depending on what their use case is, what it is they're actually trying to do. Um, uh, And something that I do think that we have been learning across genetics and genomics is a lot of the use cases where we thought that what we needed to do was to carve up that tree. It turns out it's better to instead treat these sort of patterns of variation in a continuous fashion behind the scenes. Um, so I, I, I think that moving away from these big continental ancestry categories is good science and it's also good ethics. And to say more about the good ethics piece, like the concepts that we use don't just frame intellectual inquiries in a subject like genetics, they also frame um, much bigger questions. So uh, actually in this case, it's not even just clinical medicine or public policy. It's also the very way that we sort of might think about our species and how we're all related to each other, sort of existential questions almost about our species. And um, yeah, so, so the stakes are quite high to get this right. Yeah. And genetics not only has um, kind of a very intertwined history with racism and eugenics, but it continues to be basically the dominant philosophy of white supremacists. Mm. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, like this is just such a sad picture in the States, but... Um, one of the mass shootings from last year in Buffalo in which 10 African-Americans were, were, were murdered, um, that shooter had posted a manifesto online which cited a bunch of genetics research to sort of justify his beliefs. 
Um, and that's not uncommon. Like, there's all sorts of nasty corners of the internet where a lot of, particularly the figures, actually, from genetics papers get reproduced and, and get said, look, we really are from these different groups. Genetics proves it. Yeah. We're genetically superior. They're inferior, etc. Um, so uh, it's it's really like, yeah, high stakes to try and get, to seize this opportunity when people are reconceptualizing human biological difference to not just make the same mistakes that we've been making over and over again in the field of genetics and genomics over the last 100 years so yeah 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 there's a lot to unpack here this is yeah yeah, this is really fascinating stuff i think just on your 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 last point i'll link in the show notes there's a really great article on uh undark about that shooting which references a lot of your work and it and it and it talks as well about how the the shooter had he'd not only referenced or you know text talking about race from biology but talking about um ancestral um you know inherent um, sorry i've forgotten the name the um ancestral categories oh yeah um which which showing that obviously yeah i mean it it's obvious that those things are going to be conflated i mean they're right. almost not even it's not even conflation necessarily that <laughs> there's just so closely aligned right and and in other empirical work i've done you know you see this conflation made by scientists by doctors by Mm. you know regular folk like everybody conflates the categories and it's not helped by the fact that this this kind of concept ancestry it's not even really a concept it's a it's a mishmash of things and again um, i've done a bunch of empirical work on this where we've asked scientists whose work like uses this concept um quite substantially what they actually mean by it yeah and they have a really really hard time answering (laughs) and the more honest ones say things like um well my mentor said we used to use ethnicity but now we should use ancestry yeah or well we wanted to say mixed race but that didn't sound very good so we used mixed ancestry yeah it's just like a pc term but <laughs> it's a pc term like another quote that yeah. i remember it was something along the lines of you know quite frankly i'm willing to say it's a dodge it just doesn't raise people's heckles in the way that race or ethnicity does right so so like it's just very very unclear what it actually <laughs> what it actually is so something we advocate for um, myself and collaborators is you should never just use the term ancestry you should qualify it with genetic ancestry or genealogical ancestry or something that's actually like Uh named something specific the term population is another big bugbear of mine like it sounds scientific but again if you ask people include scientists including scientists who are using the the term over and over again in their work what they mean by it you're not going to hear the same answer twice like if you're a population geneticist and you're really working with uh, you know a nice clean simple model a population is a group of individuals who are mating at random that is a population geneticist uh, definition of a population only ever appears in models yeah people people don't generally don't mate at random right i'm not seeing that <laughs> yeah, yeah right not not a thing that generally happens um And then if you're a statistician, the population is like the group of people that you think your sample generalizes to. Mm -hmm. 
for most people, population means like, oh, it's the population of Edinburgh or it's yeah. the population of the UK, right? It's like, it's a demographer's sense of population. But if you're, if you're reading like a public health article or a medicine article, it's completely unclear what, what is meant. Mm. And it sounds scientific. That's, what di- that's what's dangerous about it. It sounds like you're actually using some clear concept and you're totally not. Like, again, I remember one interviewee in the study I did was like, yeah, I have actually thought about this and I've worked out what it means. It means large N. <laughs> and I think that's, that's probably the most honest answer. That's, yeah. that's pretty much what it means. That's great. I mean, as you say, like the, you know, there's dangers here, but there is an opportunity and the stakes are high. It's not, there is like a moral imperative to get this right. And there's also a scientific incentive because the problem that we're coming back to are things like um, getting your polygenic risk scores as accurate as possible. Because as you say, like the, the quality of those scores depends on the the individual that you're trying to make an, a prediction for to say you know for example you have increased risk of type 2 diabetes or, or whatever it, they need to be the conclusions need to be drawn from um i don't want to say population now but from a sample <laughs> right yeah. based on a sample that that is very close to um you know that individual's genome in a meaningful sense and this, you know, the, the, the kind of answer that you're suggesting is something around, is, is the ancestral recombination graph, I guess. Um, right. Or you might even say this is a use case. There's a, there's a wonderful geneticist um, in the UC system called Graham Coop. Mm-hmm. And he, he just says, look, for this kind of thing, what's important is a measure of genetic similarity. That's not, we don't need to even evoke anything to do with ancestry. Right. Anything to do with time slices. And... Yeah, we need to somehow like control for genetic similarity. And by the way, one of you know one of the main reasons why it's thought that these polygenic scores do not port well to other groups mm-hmm. is that they've been trained on the type of data that we were describing that twenty three andme etc gets at, which is just this genotype data, which is where you're just looking at a few hundred thousand points of the genome. They haven't right. been trained on looking at the whole genome. Right. So then. It's also the case that like genetic variants are correlated with each other because of the way DNA is inherited. Yeah. So two variants that are literally like closer together on a chromosome um, are more correlated with each other than ones which are further apart on a chromosome. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. And so what what we're what we've been finding in m- many of these GWAS, it's not the kind of mechanistically causal variants that are actually having an effect on a phenotype. It's variants that are correlated with other rarer things that we haven't directly got data for. And those patterns of which um, genetic variants are correlated with which, those vary across the ancestral recombination graph. So that's thought to be the main reason why these scores do not port well. Um, But it's also the case that the environment matters (laughs) and that um, if if you... even if you, you know, all other things being equal, if you're looking at individuals who've, say, developed type 2 diabetes in very different um, environments, then that also matters. And that's also a, a way in which you as an individual can be different systematically from the training data. Right. Um, so, 
uh, yeah, again, it's complicated. <laughs> it's not clear how should we should deal with this. Um, and one of the things I like about my field is there's a sort of questions about how should we be doing our research? What concepts should we be using, etc. And then there's just very practical challenges. It's like, okay, if you want to design a report to share with an individual about their risk, genetic risk for type 2 diabetes, how do you think about that? How do you actually do that? Yeah. Uh, so there's all sorts of challenges ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I... Th- I just want to make sure I've understood the the, the poly uh, sorry the ancestral recombination graph because yeah. it sounds like as you say this may not be it's not the only tool necessarily that we need for these problems you can just look at similarity across people's genomes right. um, and, and use that as the way of understanding the predicting portability of results yeah but I guess as you you're also saying well it seems like the ARG or ARG is is capturing something important and it's specifically might be kind of solving for this problem of like uh, i don't know collinearity or something where you have several um things like this is just a classic problem i guess in machine learning where you have multiple variables which um you don't want two correlated variables going into or something right um spews out spurious predictions yeah and that's a way of controlling for this and one thing I, I really liked about your explanation of uh, of the ARG when you first gave it is that it's not this kind of flattened thing which uses all the dimensions that um, you know genetic ancestry does. If you're just saying, "Oh, genetic ancestry is you know European or something," it's just right. like this 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 like block of space, yeah. right? It's it's incorporating, like you said, it's 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 capturing who was. Who was having sex at who? Right, right, <laughs> with, right. With whom? And like that depends on, like you said, language, uh, geography, time, obviously right, as well. Right. Like different. So... Yeah. So what the time piece I think is really important. Like so. So just to be clear, I, um, you know, following others, I'm saying genetic ancestry is just this ancestral recombination graph. Right. Okay. One of the things that enables us to do is to appreciate that it's a historical concept and not one of like essences. So we can think about you know, you can think about three generations back and what did that look like? Or you can think about 30 generations back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Any imposition of one set of categories is implicitly interested in just one slice of that kind of historical picture. Um, and yeah, and, and, and is that's an incredibly rich object. Like we're never going to be able to, you know, have that object sitting on a hard drive somewhere. Like it's, it's more that it helps us get clear on what the concept is and is not. Hmm. Um, so genetic similarity, okay, um, I kind of go back and forward about how useful a concept I think this is. But of course, then you've got to define what it means for, for two people mm-hmm. to be similar. In practice, we usually do that using a dimensional reduction technique. And it's still the case that the bog standard principal component analysis absolutely dominates the field. Um, so that's just a dimensional reduction technique. And then you just look at how close in space in that sort of dimensionally reduced space two individuals are. But of course, that's just, that, that dimensionality reduction is defined by the data that you put into it. Mm-hmm. So another problem we've had in the field is like the starting data we had was sampled in such a way to kind of 
basically, if you wanted, if you wanted to design a sampling scheme to make humans look like separate groups, you couldn't have done it better. Um, it was kind of you, you had to be an individual with four, you know, all four of your grandparents from the same small village, etc., and then they were sort of spread out around the world in these particular ways, and that's what gave us these sort of initial visualizations of genetic similarity. You look at real data and it looks nothing like that. It looks like continuous. Yeah. Um, so it's but, just like a matter of experimental design that it seems like, you know, if you look at maybe some of the early data from genomics, it looked like they were very distinct right. groups, but that was just the way the way it had been sampled. Yeah. And like so often you hardly ever see anybody from like North Africa or the Middle East in those reference data. Like just, yeah, it was, it was sort of designed, I think, to... Yeah, like I said, you couldn't have designed it better to if you wanted to make it look like humans came in these sort of distinct clusters. Um, but anyway, yeah, with genetic, with any measure that you have of genetic similarity, um, is is just some kind of low dimensional representation of the ancestral recombination graph. Right. Um, so yeah that that is kind of the object that contains all the information right and then you have to make choices depending on your use case uh about what kind of uh summary of that makes most sense for what you're trying to achieve okay yeah yeah brilliant i think um i want to we don't have much time left, uh, or I'll, it depends on the patience of our listeners, I guess, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and of ourselves. But um, I, yeah, I want to very quickly go over some of the kind of CRISPR things because I think yeah. um, I, I'm really interested in your 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 ideas around, or particularly why there doesn't seem to be you call it the non-germline non-controversy yeah and how there's been a lot of attention with CRISPR so this gene editing technology whereby we can basically cut and paste um, bits of DNA a lot of attention on doing that in heritable portions of of, of uh, or, or places where the DNA would be inherited from so yeah. doing it in basically eggs uh, right, fertilized right. eggs I guess uh, which would make kind of permanent changes in um, genetic makeup uh, that, that could be inherited generation after generation. But there doesn't, well, two things are striking to me about this. There doesn't seem to be much um, focus on, or as much attention of on uses of CRISPR, the ethical implications outside of the germline. So just in changes that would... Uh, influence an individual during their lifespan and also I'm really intrigued why there's not been the same level of concern about changes in bacterial like microbes and stuff where people uh -huh. are making edits which are like heritable yeah. <laughs> like there's not this kind of like germline non-germline right. distinction yeah but you just make an edit in a bacteria, and if you if if you do it right, it's just going to carry on. Okay, that. yeah. Uh, so so I've asked you a lot of questions there. No, 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 no um, I, uh, yeah. Thank you. I mean, okay. So let's talk about humans first. Mm -hmm. So that that was actually the very first sort of bioethics paper that I wrote, and I had had this observation just watching the dialogue in the field. That okay, so we we, we tend to think of this sort of two by two matrix of the types of modifications that we can make to human dna yeah 
Uh, so as you said, there's germline versus non-germline. And germline just means, does it have the ability to be passed on to the next generation? So it's, it's um, you know, sperm, egg cells and the progenitors um, uh, and sort of fertilised embryos um, mm-hmm. and, and things at the, the sort of very early stages of embryo development. And uh, if they affect what's going to go on to then produce more Yeah, sperm what's going to go into the next right, sperm right, right, right. Um, So we call that germline. We call everything else somatic or non-germline. And so that's one of the dimensions. And the other dimension is therapy versus enhancement. Mm-hmm. So that's a two by two matrix. And people have ge- were generally saying, well, look, um, there's... Uh, this the the thing that's really new with CRISPR, um, is it gives us this ability to modify the germline that poses all sorts of ethical um questions about our species etc etc etc, and that was getting absolutely the lion's share of all of the attention. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's sort of the therapy and enhancement divide and people people were saying including some of the big sort of reports that came out early on about this that okay maybe we could carve out some sort of therapy instances where it would make sense eventually if we sorted out safety and efficacy right um to do germline modification for therapeutic purposes never going to be okay for enhancement purposes so for example i mean Huntingdon's disease again, like were right, it like if you were to, and 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 here's the thing, and um, this is a point that like Hank Greeley, who's a bioethicist at Stanford, has made, and, and many many others, <laughs> the actual use cases for doing germline modification of embryos are very very small because you could achieve the same things by screening embryos. Right. So you know you would just, um, you know, um produce a bunch of embryos through IVF, you would screen and you'd expect to find 50% of them in this case that had, um, if, if you had an individual um, with a Huntington variant and an individual who didn't, you'd expect 50% of their embryos um, to, uh, to have the variant and the other 50% not to, so you just choose to implant the ones that didn't. You can think of some edge cases where uh, that strategy might not work, but we're really, really talking about um, big edge cases. And right. um, yeah, this this idea that, and then that, that's, a, that's a whole of the conversation to be had about the sort of the ethics of screening embryos. That is something that is um, yeah. completely standard today. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, in the case of the US, completely unregulated. In the case of the UK, quite regulated. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so 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 people say, okay, well, maybe, maybe, maybe there were these edge cases that we could justify human germline modification for therapeutic purposes, but enhancement always going to be morally questionable. So enhancement is making something better, and therapeutic is fixing it, basically. That's right, but it's a More it's a very hard line <laughs> to draw. It turns out. <laughs> yeah, you have some uh, great examples of this. Uh, but yeah, yeah, maybe. Sorry, carry on with your current thought. Okay, so so then then this other axis you've got is um, uh, germline and somatic, and the, the sort of you know the the killer app for CRISPR when it comes to humans is gene therapies. So this is you've got existing individuals 
who are suffering from monogenic conditions. Um, and the idea is, is that just sort it at its source, go in and edit hmm. the gene which is not functioning properly, put in a functioning copy, and you should completely cure the disease. That is the theory. Um, there are uh, some approved, and there were loads more in the pipeline, and um, there were still many challenges uh, to be overcome, like how do you, you know, safety, efficacy, how, how do you get this sort of the CRISPR system to the cells that, that you need to alter? Hmm. But, but there are, there's kind of like a pipeline at this point of therapies which look promising. So that's that quadrant, the kind of um, uh, therapy and somatic everybody seems pretty comfortable with. There's safety and efficacy concerns, yes, we should really be thinking about those. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, yeah, but, you know, that first article was about this other quadrant, which was really about, um, uh, yeah, so non-germline and non-therapeutic. Like, that's that sort of um, somatic enhancement um, quadrant of that two by two, which had just received basically no no attention in the literature and that we wrote about and for example one of the issues is um uh you know many of these genetic changes the way the gene the genetic variants end up influencing the characteristics or the phenotype of the individual is via influencing development so if you wait if you wait until an individual is an adult you're not going to have that effect so you've got all sorts of um uh, you know issues there about um, about potential genetic modification of, of children mm. um, for example uh, to increase their chances of being taller um, uh, yeah another, another example might be other kind of things that would give people an edge in um, the sporting world yeah. but I do think that there's, there's sort of things that, that come up in that that might well come up in that space and there's certainly a group of people who have proven themselves willing to sort of experiment <laughs> on themselves. Yeah. Um, the so-called biohackers. So, yeah. So, that's humans. You also brought up non-humans. And that is a um, very unregulated space. And you, you were talking about bacteria. And when we talk um uh, for bacteria and viruses, there's a whole field that's called gain of function um, mm-hmm. research that has um, achieved a level of notoriety during the COVID pandemic because something that actually is kind of standard practice in a lot of labs is they'll take these organisms which have really, really short generation times <laughs> yeah. and they'll see if they can induce gaining new function so if it's in the case of bacteria it might be the ability to metabolize something new or in the case of a virus the ability to evade some aspect of like um uh the mouse immune system Mm -hmm. and um (laughs) this this has been the subject of a lot of debate um and uh, such research was paused for some time in the US under the Obama administration, but was restarted. Of course, it's then really tied to 
all of the debates about how secure are our um, supposedly secure laboratories for doing this type of thing. Um, and yeah, I expect to see it uh, come back in the news. This is not my area of expertise, but it does seem a little bit like playing with fire. Um, uh, given that there have been so many lab leaks, um, uh, you know, multiple recorded uh, lab leaks in many different countries over the last few decades. Um, so yeah, I, I expect that it will um, be a topic that gets revisited. Um, and of course, the scientists would say, well, look, yes, there is a risk here. But there's huge countervailing public benefit from the type yeah. of research we're doing. Yeah, yeah. And so, I th yeah, that, that, that needs to be the consistent focus is like, what is the public benefit? Um, make sure that's convincing. And it's not just, you know, this is the thing that turned out to be good for my career or whatever. Yeah, like, we'll do yeah. it because we can. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I yeah. think um, recently... Uh, George Church's lab, which I guess is just down the road from you in yeah. Harvard, um, I think they announced that they've they've modified E. coli to make it like completely virus resistant. On you know, um, and one might say, oh well, kind of, I don't want E. coli doing that. But I, yeah. I guess E. coli is is you know really useful in the kind of synthesis of, of lots and lots of things, right? Lots of um, chemicals right. that we you know really complicated to make chemicals they're really good at making it we can modify them and so yeah you can you can see the benefit of that but it's very hard to do those you know risk analyses i guess i think that's exactly right yeah like it totally makes sense that the right framework to use is a sort of risk benefit analysis framework but how do you estimate those risks i guess there's a lot of parallels with how we think about ai etc yeah um yeah not clear yeah um what do you think i mean very briefly do you think what is the right kind of ethical framework to look at these kind of things like consequentialism doesn't apply so well i think there's arguments that in ai um and i think these carry over to this bioethics questions it's just too hard to predict what the consequences are going to be so using any kind of consequentialist framework it's just really hard yeah um and so do you sort of go for a deontological let's just have a rule about this or a kind of virtue ethics approach or do you just try and try and stick with it as as i think many people are trying to do with ai and and particularly within um i guess like uh the kind of effective altruism communities like certainly consequentialism seems to be the approach used for oh, yeah. AI. Uh, yeah. I mean, question. I don't think there is one good meta-ethical framework here. Mm -hmm. Bioethics has really been dominated by the use of kind of what you might call mid-level principles, and specifically the ideas of beneficence doing good, non-maleficence not doing harm, justice, and respecting autonomy. Mm -hmm. I think the principle-based approach is helpful it kind of it's kind of a you know it's not uniquely consequentialist it's not uniquely deontological um uh and yeah i think it's important to be not exclusively either of those things 
I also think that there's a really big role to play for virtue ethics. I think the way I see a lot of my work going is basically sort of trying to produce useful, what are essentially virtue ethics frameworks for researchers. Because my experience, like, I think the alternative is to really say, you know, in this situation, thou should do this, believe me, because we've really thought through the ethics of it and sort of have rule book type situation, which is not really, which is never going to happen because um, you've always got, you know, no no one research project is identical to another. Um, so you want to be giving researchers tools to think through um, some of the ethical issues that might be arising in their work um and uh yeah that's kind of that's a virtue ethics type approach it's about sort of building the capacities to um to identify and um appropriately react to some of these issues um so yeah so i guess it's a case of letting many flowers bloom and trying to take um ideas uh that seem useful and that seem to work <laughs> i think across all of the kind of applied ethics literature there's been remarkably little kind of work that really looks at what actually what types of work in applied ethics make a difference um i think we should be doing more of that <laughs> so you mean like what actually gets picked up or... Yeah, what what gets picked up? What yeah. what ends up impacting things in the way that one hopes? Yeah. And yeah, and my, my experience of working with scientists is that almost, you know, they usually really understand like some of the ethical issues uh, or or get them very quickly when pointed out and uh, sort of feel motivated um to do better, particularly uh younger younger folk but it's just really hard to know what comes next so trying to fill in that gap um it's non again again it's complicated but i do think we need more kind of uh empirical data collection and reflection on what actually makes a difference yeah yeah cool i have one one final tangent for my final question. You you have uh, this great example about about the difficulty of drawing that line between therapeutics and enhancement that you yeah. you kind of alluded to that difficulty earlier. Yeah. Um, and the example I'm thinking of is to do with Hamani Granger. Oh, yeah. Can can you do you remember this that you wrote on your blog and her teeth? Oh yeah. Oh gosh, which book is it in? Um, Anyway, somebody has grown her teeth. Her, it's Malfoy, yes. Oh, yeah, Malfoy has made her two front teeth, like, grow to rabbit-sized proportions. And um, and the nurse is sort of fixing them and is asking Hermione to basically say stop when they're at their right size. And she thinks that, she always, that before she had teeth that were slightly too large, so she allows them to overshoot and go back to what she considers to be um, a more, you know, a better size. Am I remembering my example? Yeah, you're remembering your example very well. Yeah, so, yeah, so should you, does, you know, was that 
Hermione going for some enhancement there or was that just part of the therapeutic process? Uh, I like a, another practical example is with height. If you are thinking about uh, adjusting, uh, if, if you've got a, if you've got a kid and, um, you know, there might be, you can imagine um, two kids who are both predicted to grow to, let's say, five, five foot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and in one of the cases, it's that prediction is based on the fact that their parents are both very short. And in another case, it's based on the fact that they had this, um, they actually had some sort of tumour which suppressed mm. some key hormones at some key points. Like, um, you could consider giving growth hormone to either kid. Is it, is it therapy for one and enhancement for the other? Um, and if so, why? Like, we, you really quickly run into this issue of, like, what is natural, what is normal... Mm. Um, and that's very, you know, it's like, you might then come up with something like, well, it depends on what it would have been in the absence or the presence of like some sort of counterfactual that you can spin up. Um, but you know, these are models like any others and there aren't any, there aren't any kind of answers given to us by nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I love that you're. To me, you're using some of the skills that we picked up in the philosophy side of uh, physics and philosophy yeah. degree, the, creating these like very, what might seem sort of recherche thought experiments, uh-huh. but they really capture, um, you know, they they get to the core of the problem. Intuition and pumps. Intuition pumps, yeah. yeah. And it's great that you've drawn on Harry Potter for it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, this has been, um, yeah, this has been really, really fun. Um, but we do need to get to the beach because it's, uh, yeah, it yeah. is a lovely and unusually sunny day here in Edinburgh. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's any like final thoughts you want to offer, uh, listeners. Um, I think, yeah, it's been, firstly, I, I just want to say, like, it's really interesting to see how your career yeah. has gone from, you know, from the physics into the sciences, into ethical questions of sciences so i think it's a good example for anyone who's thinking about these that you know this is possible and you you know these are important things to think about oh yeah well thank you thank you so much for having me this has been a lot of fun a final thought i i'm convinced um that causation as it's used in science is in need of a massive overhaul um so that's and that takes us right back to our physics and philosophy days uh so i'm excited to yeah to think about that in the future wow what a mic drop (laughs) (laughs) cool thanks for having me thanks so much for listening you can find the show notes at multiverses.xyz and don't forget to uh, subscribe leave a review on spotify apple podcasts or overcast wherever you listen cheers for hanging on to the end here's till next time